0: All right, Christ Community Church, as we begin our sermon this morning, would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. This morning we are picking up in verse 31 and we're going to press on all the way through verse 65. And while you're making your way there, I'd like to remind you that as we study Jesus in Luke's gospel this Easter, we are considering in particular the fact that Jesus is the crucified King and the risen Lord. He endured The the fullest of humiliation. There was no depth to which Jesus was not willing to go to descend in humility in order to save us. We see Him descend as He gets closer and closer to the cross. We're going to see it um, in this passage this morning as He prays earnestly about taking on the wrath of God for our sin and as He begins to be mocked and scorned uh, by, by wicked people who condemn Him. But we're also remembering that He is also the exalted King that He is victorious, that He is raised from the dead, that He ascended to heaven, that He reigns even now as our King. And His reign continues forevermore and it will come in consummation when He returns. And so we want to behold our King. We don't want these stories to be things that, that we just you know, drive through year after year and then don't think much about and, we, and that don't shape our lives. We want the Lord to give us eyes to behold our King. And that in beholding Him, we would see ourselves and see our calling as Jesus' disciples in fresh light. That there is no depth to which we may be called to go where He will abandon us, but He will faithfully stand by us all the way. And so last week we saw that Jesus is the great King who serves His people. And this week we're going to get to see that He is the perfectly faithful King. He is faithful in the face of suffering and He's faithful in the face of shame, all for our salvation. And the key truth then that we're going to see this morning is that because Jesus was perfectly faithful in suffering, we get to pray for strength to become faithful and we get to turn back to Him when we fail. Let me read that again for us. Because Jesus was perfectly faithful in suffering, we get to pray for strength to become faithful and we get to turn back to Him when we fail. So let's turn now. And see this come to life in Luke 22, verses 31 through 65. Jesus said this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew, and from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders, who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you do not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, As we begin this story, there's there's a lot of the narrative that we're going to cover this morning. But a question that is hard to ask, but so important for us to wrestle with, that, that will help us see what is happening here, is this question. It's a question we've sometimes considered before at Christ Community Church in our preaching and teaching. And the question is this. If you were Satan, how would you attack you? You see, Luke highlights Satan's involvement in Jesus' final days of his life and his ministry more than any of the other Gospels. We saw it last week where Satan entered into Judas. And we know that we don't need to be afraid of Satan entering into us in that way. If we are believers, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. We are Christ, not Satan's. But that doesn't mean that we just, you know, shrug it off and and don't ever consider Satan. Because as we see, Satan wants to divide. He wants to devour, he wants to destroy God's people. If he can't have us, he wants us to forget about the fact that God has us completely. And so we need to ask ourselves, if you were Satan, how would you come after you? Would you attack your marriage? Would he come after you in your parenting, with your money, by trying to ask God to give you all the things you really want, so then you forget about God completely? We need to be aware of this because as we're going to see in this passage, Satan is attacking all of Jesus' disciples. He's attacking them in their prayer and he's attacking them in their repentance. He wants them to fall away, if not completely, but in utter shame so that they would forget about how faithful their king is and how much he loves and how much he likes them. And so we're going to see that first and foremost in verses 31 to 46. We're going to see that the king is faithful in prayer even as Satan is attacking the disciples to make them faithless. And as we turn to the text and as we stepped back into it, you you will have noticed we jumped right back into Jesus' conversation with the disciples at the table in the upper room. He had just talked to them about the fact that they do not need to build up their own greatness. They already have a spot at his table. They have a place in his kingdom and that sets them free to serve. But now Jesus turns to Peter directly and he addresses him by his old name, Simon, Simon. And he tells Peter something very dire and important. He says, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And the you there is really a y'all, it's a plural you. Satan is demanding not just Peter, but all other 11 disciples other than Judas. Satan's greedy, he's gotten Judas. He wants to get them all. And yet Jesus tells Peter, he says, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And then when you return, that you could strengthen your brothers. Because Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus knows Satan. He has seen Satan do this before. It's what we saw Satan do to Job in the book of Job chapters 1 and 2. He says to God, Job only likes you because you've gone easy on him. You've given him lots of great stuff and a nice life. Let me at him. He'll curse you to your face. And now Satan's saying to Jesus, your disciples, they're with you for the free bread. They're with you because they think it makes them get lots of recognition. They think it's going to make them be liked by people. They think they're going to get a crown placed on their head. But man, If you let me at them for five minutes, they'll all fold. They'll be like chaff in the breeze. There's no substance, they're phonies. I'll prove it. And things look pretty good for Satan at first because notice how Peter responds to what Jesus tells him. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter is underestimating Satan's attack and he is overestimating his own ability. In his pride, he says, Satan can't touch me. I'm Peter. I've been with you. I figured out that you were the Christ before the rest of these guys. They may fall away. I'm not going to. I am with you, Jesus. And yet notice what else happens here. In underestimating Satan's attack, in overestimating himself, Peter also, most importantly, underestimates Jesus' prayer for him. He completely misses that. And that teaches us and it warns us That in pride, we can never appreciate our need for prayer. We're like Peter, we don't think we need it. We don't think the attack is that big of a deal. We don't recognize the value of Jesus praying that our faith would not fail. We think, that could never happen to me, I'm not going to sin in that way. So things are looking like it's playing into Satan's hand. And then as we press on, after telling Peter, no, you will deny me, Jesus then turns and he addresses the rest of the disciples. And he reminds them of something that happened earlier in their their ministry with him. Back in Luke 9 and 10, Jesus sent them out for the first time to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And he didn't let them go with a full array of equipment. He said, go and preach, the Lord will provide. And he asked them now, he says, did you lack anything when I sent you? And They say, no, we didn't lack anything. And that was the point. Jesus was teaching them not to depend upon the things they could see in front of them, and upon the things that they had but to trust in the Lord, to know that man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father, that we live not bound by the circumstances before us, but we live under the reign of the sovereign God who loves us and who cares for us and who provides even when we think it's impossible. But Jesus also now signals, and he says, but now something's changing. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12, that he will be numbered with the transgressors, And we know this is coming on the cross. He will be crucified in between two transgressors, two thieves. And that will happen because on the cross, Jesus will take on our sin, our transgression. He will die in our place. And yet in addition to that, Jesus also knows that this means the world is going to look at him and say, you're the bad guy, Jesus, you're what's wrong with the world. We need to get rid of you. And so Jesus knows that if the world is going to treat him that way, the world will treat the disciples. The world will treat us that way. Jesus is telling the disciples, you will follow me. You will minister in my name in hostile territory. Don't expect smiles and a welcome committee when you go and you proclaim the gospel. And therefore, be prepared. Use the things God has given you, your money bag, your knapsack, even a sword. Use these things wisely and with great creativity in your ministry. But don't trust those things. Trust the Lord who will make sure you always have what you need. But notice what happens. The disciples get distracted. And they focus only on the sword. And they say, Lord, look, we've got two swords. We're ready to go. We can can do something with this. They're like us. They look at the, the objects they have and they forget about asking the Lord, well, how would you have me use this? They think they already know. They overestimate their ability to fight back with their own strength and resources. And so when Jesus says, it is enough, He's not saying, Two swords is just fine. We know he's not affirming what they think they know about the swords because later on in verse 51, he's going to stop them from using just one of these swords. What Jesus is saying is, it's enough of this conversation. You don't understand yet. But you will in time. He's not going to let them continue to talk about power and swords and violence. He's going to instead point them to his own example, to continue to teach them where their real preparation lies. The church does not build itself up through the sword or violence. We build ourselves up in prayer, which is exactly where we see Jesus go. Because He finishes the conversation there, it ends. The disciples aren't getting it. Satan looks like he's winning. So what does Jesus do? He takes them to the Mount of Olives. Luke doesn't mention the exact place. He just says, and when they came to the place, but we know from the other gospels, this is the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus tells the disciples in their next lesson, the next thing they need to know, He says, pray. Pray that you would not enter into temptation. And then Jesus practices exactly what he just preached. And he goes, a stone's throw away, and he prays. And in this prayer, especially in verse 42, we see Jesus is praying about the cup. He's asking God if there's any way for this cup to be removed from him. And this is not the cup of God's blessing. This is the cup of God's awesome and just wrath. It is the cup we heard about this morning in Psalm 75. It's the cup we heard about in Isaiah 51. Notice that in Isaiah 51, our assurance of pardon, the cup was in Israel's hands, but the Lord took it away from them and put it into the hands of their enemies. They were spared the fullness of His wrath. And yet now we see where the cup goes ultimately. It's going into Jesus' hands. And one drop of this cup, one just ounce of God's wrath, is enough to destroy any of us. And we deserve it. We deserve God's wrath because of our sins. But Jesus doesn't. And that's why He's praying this. You could look at this and wonder, wait a minute. Why is Jesus asking for God to take the cup from Him? Doesn't He want to save us? Isn't He, you know, going through His state of humiliation? Isn't there no depth to which He won't go? What's happening? Well, what's happening is that Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He is wholly righteous. Which means he more than any of us knows what it's going to cost him to drink this cup in full for us. You see, only an arrogant or a sinful or an unrighteous person could look at this cup and say, ah, oh, it's probably not so bad. Our sin blinds us to the weight of God's wrath, but Jesus sees it in full. And so he asks, Is there any other way? But not my will, but your will be done. And notice how God responds to this prayer, he sends an angel. And this angel comes and it strengthens Jesus It ministers to him. And notice what happens. The the strength of the angel doesn't turn Jesus into some sort of superman who is now above suffering and doesn't experience the agony and the dread at the thought of experiencing God's wrath on the cross. Instead, now in agony, he prays even more earnestly. The the angel strengthens him so he can pray more. The strength of the angel doesn't help Jesus avoid suffering. It helps him endure suffering. We see that Jesus will be faithful in his suffering because he has been faithful in prayer. But what's going on with the disciples? When Jesus turns back to them, it turns out they've been faithless in prayer. They're sleeping for sorrow. They, they seem to be starting to wonder, maybe the kingdom's not going to appear right away like we thought. Jesus doesn't seem to be doing what we wanted. And, you know, in their grief and in their confusion, they sleep. And they sleep because they're overestimating themselves. They think they're safe. They've got two swords at their sides. And so they don't pray. They don't value prayer. And they don't recognize how their lack of preparation is setting them up for failure, is opening them up to Satan's attack. And we should pause here as we reflect on this story and we think about the showdown between Satan and Jesus. We need to ask ourselves, how important is prayer to you? Do you pray like your life depends on it? Because it does. Or do you treat prayer like your last resort? Often prayer is the first thing we'll push off of our schedules. And sometimes we'll find ourselves saying, I don't know what else to do other than pray. As if that shouldn't be the first thing we should do. But if if you find yourself, as you're reflecting on that question, feeling discouraged, take heart. Don't forget what we see Jesus doing as our faithful King in this passage. Philip Graham Ryken, pastor theologian, in his commentary on Luke, he has this to say, and we need to hear this, because it's so encouraging. He says, Jesus prays more wisely, more frequently, and more efficaciously than anyone. He prays more for us than we ever pray for ourselves. Therefore, although we may go through many difficult trials, and even fall into wicked sin as Peter did, we will not be lost because Jesus has prayed that our faith will not fail. Whatever desperate situation we bring Him, with all of our complaints and objections, the Savior of sinners holds up His hand and says, but I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And so you you may feel weak and disappointed with your prayers, but take heart. The book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is our faithful High Priest. He intercedes for you even now. He sustains your faith even when it seems weak and it seems like there's barely a glowing ember that could be fanned back into flame. Jesus sustains us. He is perfectly faithful in prayer even when we find ourselves, like the disciples, falling asleep, unfaithful. Christ's prayers sustain us. And therefore we get to come to Him and we can pray and ask for strength, that we can become faithful one hard step at a time. Now we see that Jesus, the steps for him got hard as well, because in verses 47 through 65, he now having been faithful in prayer, the king is now also faithful when betrayed, denied, and mocked. And so let's look back to this part of the text. Luke is going to move very quickly in this part of the narrative. And so we need to pay close attention to see how all of this is unfolding. The disciples, while Jesus is talking to them about prayer, they see this mob led by Judas. While Jesus is speaking, this mob comes and they come to arrest Jesus and Judas would betray him with a kiss and Jesus questions him. He says, would you use a kiss, which in Greek is the the same word used for the love of friendship. Would you betray me in that way? And yet the disciples have a very different reaction. They see this happening. They think, all right, it is time to use our swords. It's time to rise up. It's time to act. And so they say, Lord, should we strike with the sword? and notice what happens. They don't pause and wait for Jesus to answer. They take things into their own hands. They act. They strike. And one of them cuts off the the servant of the high priest's right ear. And We know from other Gospels it's Peter. And recognize what is happening here. They were not ready. In prayer for this moment. And so they acted in haste. They acted in presumption. They acted in the name of the Lord. They thought they were doing Jesus a favor here, but notice their prayerless action winds up backfiring him. By unleashing bloodshed and violence here, they've actually potentially undermined Jesus' reputation. Because the high priest could turn and they could use this attack as evidence against Jesus. They could say, we came after him. We came and we surrounded him and they took, they struck first. They took the first move. And so what does Jesus do? He tells them, enough of this. His kingdom will not be advanced by the sword. It will not be advanced in anger. It will not be advanced in retaliation. It will not be advanced in hatred. It will be advanced by the word of his mouth, by the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. He puts a stop to this violence. And he turns and he heals this man's ear. While the blood is still gushing from his head, he is healed. Jesus will not let the folly, and the unpreparedness, and the foolishness, and the unfaithfulness of His disciples to get in the way of His plans. We can find great hope in that, because often we can look at ourselves, we can see the times where we've acted in folly because we've not been prayerful. We've done something in the name of Jesus, and we've only made a bigger mess of things. And we can see that when celebrity pastors and super uh, apologists fall, and we can wonder, is this it? But we see here, Jesus' plans cannot be undone or thwarted, even by the foolish actions of those who bear His name. That's good news. It's good news, but we should always pause and ask ourselves, are we really doing something prayerfully? Or like the disciples, is Satan tricking us to do something in God's name that the Lord wouldn't have us do, but that we're just doing because we're not prayerful, we're not prepared like they were? And Jesus, though, after healing the man, He turns to those who would arrest Him and He says, Look, you're coming after me as if I were a robber, but I'm not. You had every opportunity at the temple. He's saying they're coming at Him with a show of strength they don't need. But He says, But this is your hour. The Father had planned this, and it it is a time where the power of darkness will rejoice as though all of heaven had lost and that they had won. So Jesus submits to them, and they arrest Him, and they take Him away, and they take him to the high priest's house and Luke follows along with the narrative and he points out that out of all the eleven remaining disciples, only Peter in this story goes. And he follows and think about what Peter would have been experiencing. If he's the one who lashed out with the sword and Jesus said enough of this, Peter thought he was you know, living up to his word there. You know, if he's going to go with Jesus to prison and death, then he's going to go out in glory. He's going to serve Jesus. He's going to prove his worth in that moment. And Jesus stopped him and so he might have felt confused. And humbled, but he's not giving up. He, in in all the bravery he can still muster, he tries to follow at a distance. We know what happens. We know that as Jesus goes into the house and Peter sits down in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, he does exactly as Jesus said he would do. He denies him three times. He did not pray and he was not ready for this attack. He entered straight into temptation, fully unprepared, and he fell. And you can almost imagine, at this point, Satan sneering with glee. He'd already blown Judas away, as chaff in the breeze, with a mere pocket full of money. And now it looks like he might do the same with Peter. Peter can't even tell ordinary folks like himself that he knows Jesus. He crumples under the pressure. Is the hour of darkness consuming Peter, too? Has Satan won? Well, no, we know he didn't win. Because look what happens, the rooster crows. And Jesus turns from either the other side of the courtyard or somewhere else in the building. Somehow he was able to turn and catch Peter's eye. And he looked at him. And in that moment, Peter remembered. He remembered what Jesus had said would happen. Jesus was right. He had denied him three times. And his pledge of allegiance had been ripped in shreds by the very same lips that had uttered the boast in the first place. And so Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. But this look gives him hope. Because we know Jesus didn't look to Peter in judgment. He didn't look at, at, at Peter and cross his arms and, and raise his eyebrows and say, I told you so, you should have listened to me, but now you've, you've messed up. There's no more hope for you. That, that gaze cut through Peter's pride and it pierced his heart and it hurt, but it also softened his heart and it gave him the only hope he could have. Because Peter had been prayed for by Jesus. Satan's not gonna claim Peter. Peter belongs to Jesus. Jesus has prayed for him. And so this is a look that's meant to draw Peter back to Jesus over time. These tears will be bittersweet tears that water the seeds of repentance that Jesus had planted in Peter's heart. He will get to come back. Jesus did not make Peter feel ashamed for his sin, but he laid open the door for him to return. But notice what it costs Jesus. Notice what happens to him while he is gentle. And loving and kind to Peter. Look at how roughly Jesus is treated in verses 63 to 65. The men who are holding him while they're waiting for this trial to to be worked out, they decide, let's have a little fun with this guy. In their eyes, Jesus is a wannabe king, and he's a self-proclaimed prophet, and so they blindfold him, and they play blind man's bluff, and they start beating on him. They say, "Hey, hey, prophesy. Who is it that hit you, Jesus? And he says nothing says nothing. Think about the shame. Luke doesn't mince words. They are blaspheming Jesus because this is the eternal Son of God being mocked by thugs whose very lives are held in the hands of the one that they beat on. They're blaspheming him, and Jesus is silent. He's enduring the shame faithfully, and he doesn't need to say anything in his own defense because their very mockery of him proves that Jesus is a prophet. Back in Luke 18, Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be betrayed, I'll be handed over, I will be beaten, I will be mocked, I will die. And it is happening here. He is the perfect prophet. As we saw where he foretold what would happen with the donkey, where he foretold what would happen with finding the upper room for the Passover, where he foretold what would happen with Peter, he foretold what would happen here as well. He knew how much it would cost and he endured it all faithfully for you, for me, for all of God's people. And what that means is that everything he said to Peter will come true. Peter didn't just deny Jesus three times, but he will turn again because Jesus prayed for him, because Jesus told him this would happen, and he will get the opportunity to strengthen his brothers and sisters. And so as we see the agony and the suffering and the shame Jesus endured for our salvation, we should then ask ourselves, which way do you run when you sin? We ask this question so much at our church because this is a key area where Satan will attack you. When you sin, he will want you to weep, not the bittersweet tears of repentance, but the bitter tears of despair. He will want you to feel alone in your sin. He will want you to think that Jesus would treat you the way these thugs treated him, make you feel bad for your sin, make fun of you. Because we know that unlike Jesus, we're guilty. We have reason to feel ashamed. And Satan wants to blind our eyes so that we would never run back to Jesus. But we need to remember. We need to remember who He is. We need to remember that there is love in His eyes when He looks upon His people, that His grace is bigger than our sin and that we can turn back. We can turn back. There is no sin that can snatch us from His hands. There is nothing that, that He cannot mend in us. Don't let Satan beat you here in your repentance. But turn back and recognize that, as with Peter, there's a hope for you. A hope not just for your redemption from your sin, but a hope that your life has a purpose in Jesus' hands. Jesus will faithfully use you as you become more faithful as a follower of Him to strengthen others. Our own time of repentance can then, in turn, be used to strengthen our brothers and sisters. We can encourage them. We can love them when we see them drifting into sin, or when we see them shrinking in despair. We can say, I've been there. But Jesus is better. He is faithful. Turn back to Him. Let's go there together. And so this is what Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31 through 65 teaches us. It teaches us that we get to pray for strength so we can become faithful because Jesus has faithfully prayed for us. We're growing. This is a, a, a lifelong journey and process of discipleship and sanctification and prayer is at the heart of it. So may we be a people who pray often with one another, for one another and for ourselves. May we not be proud and think that we don't need prayer. And also we learn that we get to return to Christ when we fail every time, every time without exception, because Jesus faithfully endured the wrath. He drank the cup to the bottom and he endured the shame and the guilt on the cross that we deserve. And so we can come back to him knowing that he will deal lovingly with us. And as we close, Hear these words from Peter. We know that Peter will come running to the empty tomb in Luke 24, we'll hear that on Easter. We know how Peter's story shapes out, but hear these words from chapter five of his first letter and and consider this Lord's day, meditate on all the connections, all the ways we can tell that Peter's experiences here, his failures were not fruitless, but that the faithful king bore fruit even from these dark moments in Peter's life and that his words now strengthen me and you as well today. knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the faithful King. You were faithful in prayer. You were faithful in your suffering as you drank the cup of god's wrath um, every drop of it and you endured the shame you endured endured the ridicule and the mockery that, that we deserve in our sin you stood in our place because you loved us lord we confess that we're so often like your disciples in this story we too underestimate Satan. We overestimate ourselves. We get distracted and look to things and overestimate our ability to use those things in our own wisdom rather than being consistent and faithful in prayer and asking you, what would you have us do, Lord? How are you shaping us? But Lord, may, that, may we not just resign ourselves and say, well, we're not good at praying, but grow us, Lord. Grow us in prayer through prayer. Help us to become disciples in a church that, 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 that's very life is, is centered upon prayer. And Lord, I pray and ask that you would be with each and every one of us. May we be very quick to run back to you when we sin. Lord, may we not believe the lies of Satan here. May we never believe the lie and and sink into the despair, thinking that there is some way where we could sin so big that you would turn away in frustration. But help us to remember you look to us in your grace and your mercy and your love and you, you bid us to come back. And you bring us back, not to mock us, but to mend us. And to use us fruitfully in the service of your kingdom, in your church. And Lord, I pray that you would use our church. Help us to love one another well, to see when, when brothers or sisters need us to come around them, to love them well when they are struggling in sin, that we may all, that we may all live under the beautiful reign of your grace as our king. And we pray this in your name. Amen.